This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Hello and welcome to Did You Read, the Times podcast. In the absence of Tim Montgomery, you're in the hands of me, Philip Collins, this week, and my distinguished panel of guests who are going to discuss a range of topics. I have with me Susie Jagger, the Times Deputy Chief Foreign Editor, Philip Webster, the Head of Digital and a former Political Editor of the Times, and Patrick Kidd, the man behind TMS, the Times Diary. This month's surprise and to date devastatingly successful assault by ISIS on northern Iraq has led to a new cat cradle of shifting international alliances. Um, the West found itself to be a, a new uncomfortable bedfellow with Tehran. So how do we manage these new allegiances? And are we right to blame much of the crisis deepening in the region to President Obama's complete absence of any real foreign policy? Cameron has played the Juncker appointment badly, unnecessarily losing Merkel on the way. He can salvage something from the wreckage by facing other leaders down on Thursday and Friday and staging an immediate press conference afterwards at midnight or whenever it ends to tell the world who voted for whom. And looking at something slightly different, it's been shocking in Sao Paulo, humbled in Hamilton and now stumped by Sri Lanka in Leeds. It's been a grim few days for England sports fans. Whatever happened to that glorious summer of 2012 when we couldn't stop winning things? But let's not despair. Our teams in the three big sports, football, rugby and cricket, are rebuilding and we must give youth a chance. Let's have no knee-jerk sackings or gnashing of teeth. And if the men can't do it, let's support our women who are very good at these sports. Or maybe just turn over to the tennis and cheer for Andy Murray. Right, we'll come to that, Patrick, that um, <laughs> national moment of wailing. Let's go first to Iraq, Susie, and ISIS, and the incredibly complex, shifting nature of what's happening there. This crisis within Islam, first of all, this split within Islam, and then the very difficult question of what side we take, if any, in these various conflicts. Well, it, the last few weeks feels like a game changer, which is always a hostage to fortune. But a number of things have happened that changes everything in my mind. One is, for the first time, we have a Middle East uh, which is not dictated by borders anymore. It's dictated by sectarian rifts. So we now have ISIS ha controlling swathes of northern Iraq and Syria. And as you say, that has triggered this creation of a new cat cradle. What are we to do with the fact that Iran is now on our side, having sent in the Revolutionary Guard? I mean, it's quite feasible going forward that if the US keep to their side of the equation and say that they would consider some kind of
kind of airstrikes, that you would have uh, Soleimani, um, the Iranian um, commander, who's the uh, commander of one of the uh, elite units of the Revolutionary Guard, sitting round a table with US commanders as I say, at the same table, and this is the the same Iranian who was responsible in 2007 for killing five US soldiers. How do we manage that? But there are no angels to be on the side of, are there? I mean, the West is always criticised for being on the side of somebody who's fairly disreputable, but this is a choice between disreputable elements, isn't it? I mean, we... we, There is... Syria is a very good example where if there were a functioning opposition to be in support of, there's no question that the West would support that, but in truth alas, there isn't. So you're faced with these very difficult questions and you're faced with a choice between bad options, aren't you? You're faced with bad options, but you're faced with bad options and looking incredibly inconsistent. Because actually the last two weeks, I think, have shown that we've strengthened the argument in supporting Assad, which is a significant departure from where we were two years ago. It it may not be inconsistent. If the principle that you're consistent around is following your own interests, that can result in follow in supporting somebody in one place but not in another is not necessarily inconsistent just because it appears to be support for one in one place but not in another but your your enemy's enemy enemy is not always your friend and in this case it may well be that your enemy's enemy is your enemy and we're all following this we have been (laughs) yes (laughs) if you are following it uh, i mean the fact is that the west has been worried for for years now about Iran's nuclear capability. Um, There has been a suspicion all that time that America has been ready to appease Iran. And here we have what seems to me like at the very first opportunity. The Americans, helped along by, by the British who are talking about opening the embassy in Tehran again, are coming in and saying, in this instance, Iran is our friend. And it, it makes you wonder how this, whether we have got any policy in this area at all. Iran, behind Hezbollah, behind all kinds of things going on, they could even be behind ISIS. So how do, how do, we, how do we get out of this vacuum? We don't have a policy there. And that's why we've seen in the last week or so William Hague spending more time with Angelina Jolie than, than, spending, than not apparently having spending time on ISIS. Patrick? Well, here we are caught between a rock and a hard place. Sorry. <laughs> I'll just shut up now. Did that one on the bus on the way in. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, th- I think it's very unfair to, to criticise our politicians for... Um, well, the Mail put that front page, didn't they? Starstruck and saying that... that I mean, Hague is exploring serious issues here. Female human rights and raping and sexual violence. I don't think it's, it's hardly hanging out with celebrities. I think the problem is we're just scarred by the Middle East. We probably should have gone into Syria earlier, but we were so scared by what had happened in Iraq before that we, we don't want... We feel that we should never lose a life overseas on, on one of these ventures. And and so we did that, and we delay, and we hope someone else will pick it up. Isn't it, isn't it the case that we do have a policy, and that policy is not to have a policy? Yeah. We might have arrived at that by default, in the way Patrick says, but that does appear to be our policy. When and they've realised it, and they've, they've realised that there is absolutely no appetite in Washington or London mm. anymore to do any real intervention in the Middle East. And Susie, you're quite critical of President Obama, aren't you, for essentially having nothing, but isn't that what he pledged 
when he was running for president that he would have nothing to do with these things. Well, I think from memory, his, his position was any solution in the Middle East that has an American flag on it won't work. And he's stuck with that. So there is a consistency there. But that, I think, means he's been consistently wrong because what that message, that the message that that gives out to the likes of ISIS, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban is if you can dodge a drone attack, there is no other intervention that you have to be worried about. And I think you're seeing the consequences of Obama's lack of intervention, of Obama's vacuum of any real foreign policy playing out in Syria and northern Iraq now. Okay, talking... where it becomes, so I was going to say, where it becomes our issue, of course, is when we've got Britons going overseas to fight for them and to be trained by them and then to come back here and possibly be a security threat over here. And that's where we ought to be very concerned. Mm. Well, talking about a vacuum of policy, let's move on to Britain and the European Union. And um, Phil, you've been following the this saga with, with Juncker and the European Commission and Cameron's attempt to block that um, appointment, which appears doomed to failure as we speak. Yes, this is a, a wonderful story for European nerds. And this morning, the Luxembourg Compromise has appeared on the scene again as, a, as another method of trying to stop Juncker. I think Cameron has played this with a total lack of subtlety. And he could have learned a lot from one of his predecessors, John Major, who I think has always been underrated for his political skills. He would have gone about this in an altogether different manner. He would have, he would have set out to stop Juncker, but he wouldn't have made it a public fight. By making it a public fight, and Cameron should have realised this, it meant that Merkel, who has no regard at all for Juncker, had to back him because of the German press and German politics. Major, I mean, it, it, many years ago, I remember the, the Corfu summit of all places, none of us knew it was going to happen. Middle of the night, Major vetoed Jean-Luc Dehaene, who was then the Federalist seeking to become president of the Commission. It sh he did it by stealth. He took them by surprise. Cameron here has got uh, nothing left in his locker in the sense that if he wins they now feel they've lost and they're not going to be in a good position in terms of giving him anything in the negotiations. The Luxembourg um, compromise that you, you mentioned is a, a little-known and little-used device, not used since 1965, I think, to essentially deploy a veto in, in moments of major national interest. Yes, yes, it, 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 it was De Gaulle used it first, and uh, they've attempted to use it only once since with, without any success. But it's where you feel that your national interest is being threatened, even though you haven't got the votes. It is very much a last resort. There are doubts over its legality, but it's out there that he may try and deploy it. Uh, over Thursday and Friday. Would It'll upset them even more, of would course. Would that be catastrophic diplomatically, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would upset them that? even more. It, it would completely... Even if he were to win on this, uh, he loses on his negotiations without any doubt. No, nobody's going to be in a mood to give him anything. There's also, we should point out, a number of other jobs up for grabs at the moment, too, of which probably the most important is a single market brief on the Commission. And if you have someone like Juncker in charge of the Commission, who is, by all everybody's standards, not a reformer, you absolutely need free traders mm. in the major economic briefs. And so there's a case for saying you can do a deal on Juncker as long as you get somebody serious and reform-minded in the economic briefs. I mean, is, is it not the case that he's actually exposed himself as being a pretty amateurish politician because he's shown such a lack of agility to allow himself to be cornered in this way that, um, A, he's shown himself to not want to play the Euro-federal game and Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Be part of the club, but also exposed us as not having any proper allies with whom we could gang up with. I mean, with Blair, um, who I think, I don't know if Phil would agree, but played a blinder in Europe, we had Berlusconi, the Spanish and the Poles to turn to, and now the only people we have to turn to as an ally is a mad Hungarian. Let let me stick up for Cameron a bit against Blair. Blair had a party that was fairly uninterested in Europe, and certainly wasn't recalcitrant on the question. Cameron has a very difficult job in European politics within his own domestic audience. Doesn't he, Patrick? Well, I I think exactly, and and all his sound and fury isn't just naive uh, inability to play the Brussels game. It's the fact he's having to express his doubts publicly to to calm his own backbenchers, to Mm -hmm. to try and satisfy the UKIP lot, some may come back. And also bear in mind we've got the context of a referendum coming up where Cameron needs in the general election to say to them, I am the person who will stand up for Britain. The fact that actually he may be putting us in a a worse position by the way he's handled that, he's thinking about how I'm going to be able to go to the the electorate in 2015 and say, I will give you a referendum and look how I've been standing up for Britain and it's all those... I'll say bastards again, like I did last time I was on the podcast. In the, in the, uh, the Federalist. Potty mouth every time I know. you come on this. I, I am just, just worried, though, that, that <laughs> what concessions is he now going to get? As, as you say, we're going to have a referendum. If Cameron wins, he's committed to a referendum, but he won't actually have got any reform. Well, the so last very, thing he wants is to be the Prime Minister that takes Britain out of Europe, and yet he's in the position now where on Thursday and Friday he has to threaten that virtually. He has yes. to yes. say to them, if you go for Juncker, um, uh, Britain will vote, possibly vote, to, to, to come out. He's, he's in a very awkward situation. Uh, How do you think you that will play out, Phil? If we, let, let's just assume for the sake of argument that the Conservatives are in power after the next election, because there probably won't be a referendum if they're not. So just assume that for the moment. How do you think it then plays out over the, next, over the two years to 2017? It depends whether he's got a majority. If, if he's back in a, in a coalition, uh, we're going to see a fight to the death over the timing of the of the referendum and how does he campaign if he if does he come back as wilson did way back whenever uh, with with nothing and pretend he's got something and campaign to stay in when his own party will say actually you got nothing or, or the right of his own party will say you got nothing and the next parliament if this happens will be totally dominated by europe 
totally dominated. It'll be the one issue um, running through the next parliament. Um, and of course, Wilson in '75 already knew what he had before he called the referendum. Yeah. He already knew he had the things that the referendum was going to be on. Do you think Cameron could actually play a swerveball and um, announce instead that he's going to peg the referendum to the general election? Well, that's what a lot of Conservatives hoped for. He, he can't do it. He, he, can't, he couldn't get legislation through the House of Commons now no. to hold a referendum on election day next year because the Liberals and Labour wouldn't back him. There are Tories who believe that he should have done that. Graham Brady, for one, chairman of the 1922 committee, argued this to Cameron's face, I understand, quite some time ago, that they should have tied the two things together probably would have made sure that Cameron won the election as well. What's interesting is that as UKIP has risen, and there seems to be a lot of your scepticism, the most recent polls show is it an 8% lead for those who want us to stay in Europe. Mm. Yes, that's, so. that's, that's, that's interesting. And then that's another problem for Cameron in terms of managing his party. But, but what a legacy it would be. He could be a two-term Prime Minister who manages to lose Scotland and get us out of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we'd then live in Little England. As long as we win back the ashes next year, that's all that matters. Ah, no, well, perfectly. I can hardly resist that one. Well, we've done the Middle East and we've done the future of the European Union. Now let's go on to the real important yeah. stuff. British sport. We're struggling in everything. Well, this is the time of year when it's on the front pages rather than the back pages. And I won't dwell too much on discussing formations and uh, bowling attacks and no, stuff. No, do, no, do. <laughs> it has been a dreadful time. We were out of the World Cup with one match still to play. And we were completely walloped by the All Blacks after having a pretty good series at that point mm. last week. And as we speak now on, on Tuesday morning, England are in danger of being thrashed in a test match that they had a hefty first innings lead. But these aren't the only sports. We're actually still quite a good sporting nation. And we only have to think back to 2012 when we were all cheering on female judo players and sailors and rowers. And um, and also in these main sports, um, football, rugby and cricket, our women are very, very good. It's the Women's Rugby World Cup. That won't get supplements. That won't get back pages. But that's happening in August. And we are arguably favourites for that. It's us in New Zealand. The, the women's football team are pretty decent. Uh, one of the top eight teams in the world. And the women's cricketers hold the ashes. So... You know, maybe we should just stop talking about the men and focus on the old girls and the people who do sitting down sports and Phil, stuff. And Phil, t- if, if only I'm afraid I couldn't disagree more, <laughs> Patrick, on this. Well, Steve, I, have I, a, want have a go. S- I really do want to see knee jerk reactions all over the place. <laughs> you want sacking school? I, I, want, I, I want virtually the whole football team Bring sacked. Um, and certainly most of the cricket team uh, after yesterday's woeful display I think most of them should go as well but on a serious point on football I think we seem to be losing it from two ends if you had to pick a team to represent the premiership how many England players would be in it? not very many maybe Joe Hart and Goal and Rooney on the bench possibly and yet how many of our players are out there in Europe getting experience playing for the top yeah. teams in Europe we're losing it at that end as well there's something fundamentally wrong in the middle there one of the problems Harry Redknapp he may be a, a big mouth but he actually f- spoke the truth this week when he said there are players who just don't want to play for England why is that what's what's wrong there is it, it the money they get from the clubs something I else get it. struck me in what you said is that you you go through rugby Union, football and cricket there's no other nation that's attempting to compete at all those three at the top level we are spreading ourselves very thin there are very few, you take the two winter sports football and rugby union, there's only France who's attempting to compete at the mm. highest level they're pretty dreadful those. at rugby at the moment they're they, are. Awful they are, at rugby. so we're doing we're trying to, for a small nation we're trying to compete in everything. So what we need to do is focus a bit. Just abolish rugby union, concentrate <laughs> on football, and we'll be better. I think we should focus on, on rowing. 
we won four gold medals that we, well, can. we were clearly very good um, yeah. ISIS the Oxford Reserve crew were out creating all this trouble in the Middle East but um, bring them back <laughs> I think we should hear Susie's solution on this well, I, I, I think I, listening to what Patrick's saying I'm absolutely in favour of you know being in praise of a national sporting spectacle I was the biggest cynic when it came to the Olympics I thought it was going to be a disaster I thought that there was a high risk of a terror attack I thought it was going to cost us an absolute fortune I thought it was going to be dreadful and when it actually happened it was absolutely magical and I, I admit I did have the occasional blub every time oh. we won something I'm not sure listeners are ready for this sort of emotional highlight of my Olympics was weeping on the shoulder of my colleague in the, on the, the telegraph and Catherine Granger won her gold oh but, but um, Patrick do you think it's more than uh, just I mean, teams go through cycles and, and countries go through times when they're not that good and, and actually as you said before in, in, the, in the rugby union we had quite a good series against a very good yes. side and it's a very young England side against a very experienced New Zealand side in the rugby mm. in the cricket they changed half the team from the side of, with no improvement but they are changing the, the football side have got Rooney and Gerrard and then a lot of kids and you know we need to give these people time to, to bed in and, and establish themselves so all uh, once said that sport is, is war minus the shooting and, and that makes it far more important than real war this than is shooting. football minus the shooting <laughs> exactly well, we play in the well, maybe Cup. we should stop playing football and have the olympics every year then we then Please we see, see the very best of uh, <laughs> the very best of british sport but, but we've uh, got wimbledon the sun is shining andy murray won but, but if we yes. if we lose scotland um we we've haven't got, even got married well, well that's <laughs> but you see that's another thing that we do we're a small island and yet we insist on having four separate nations to compete in international sport at for most things. Yes. Which, again, is a preposterous thing to do. We have this thing every four years in, in, in rugby where they play as the Lions and they unite the, technically the British and Irish Lions and next time they're told they have to be the British and Irish and Scottish Lions. But they'll... Um, that doesn't happen very often. No, and the so politics of sport make that impossible. Yeah, football as well. We compete as England. We're going to see this actually in the, in the Olympics, which rugby is making its appearance in, in Rio, uh, because they compete as the separate nations, but they're going to have to come together with Great Britain and suddenly produce a composite team. So maybe there. this is back to the argument about the union. Maybe we need to argue for merger of England and Scotland, at least in sporting terms. Mm. Bring Wales in as well. And we could have Gareth Bale in the World Cup. It yes. would have been different. Certainly an argument for that in in football. Uh, there's been an argument about a British, British side for a long, long time. It worked in golf. We enlarged it to Britain and Europe, and we now have a very strong Britain and Europe team win the Ryder Cup most most times round. The cricket a lot of team has already merged with South Africa. <laughs> Can't help a feeling we're hampering ourselves. We're a very small country, and yet, and yet the expectations are still enormously high. But never mind. We've got another match today. It'll be fun. We might escape from the cricket. We might start winning the rugby. I'm trying to end on an optimistic note. There's the tennis. And there's the tennis. On Andy. There's the tennis. There's yeah. Andy Murray. On that note... Can I thank Susie Jagger, Philip Webster, Patrick Kidd for their participation? I think we've put the world, most of the world to rights there. Thank you very much for listening. Do go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central where you'll find um, a lot of interesting thoughts, uh, the comment pages of The Times. Tim Montgomery will be back next week in his usual place to resume his usual service. But for now, here's me, Philip Collins, signing off. Thank you and good night. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.